What does the gastroenterologist hunt in the Arctic? What? Various seals. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Guts and Gall. Today we'll be talking about GI bleeding. I'm Jimmy Zhang, an internal medicine physician in the greater Toronto area. And I'm Kayla Dadgar, a gastroenterology fellow at McMaster. Without any further ado, let's get right into the episode. Because we're going through upper GI bleeding today, I thought the best way to go through this would be through a case. And so I present to you, Kayla, the case of Melissa Ina, Mel for short, who is a 76-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with a one-day history of passing black, tarry stools. Her past medical history includes atrial fibrillation, hypertension, dyslipidemia, stable angina, and osteoarthritis. Her current medications include apixaban, lisinopril, and atorvastatin. She's seen by the ER physician who organizes investigations and calls you for urgent assessment. When you review the charts, blood work reveals a hemoglobin level of 66 grams per liter, a platelet count of 205 times 10 to the power of 9 liters, and an INR of 2.5. So obviously, when we first approach this patient, we think about our ABCs. Are they protecting their airway? Are they oxygenating sufficiently? How is the blood pressure heart rate? providing volume resuscitation as needed, ensuring a monitored setting and supporting her in supportive care. But when you get there, what would be some key questions or pertinent past medical history that you would want to elicit quickly that may change your management immediately? What are some other important history questions that you would want to elicit if you had a little bit more time? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a number of things that are important to elicit from this patient encounter. Um, I always like to start, as you mentioned, with the ABCs and kind of getting a sense from the patient and the eMERGE doc about how stable the patient was, particularly when they first came into the department. Um, So were they initially presyncopal or syncopal? Were they hypotensive? Um, and how much volume resuscitation blood products did they require to stabilize them if they're now stable. Another thing that's important to think about right away is if um, they have any anticoagulants on board. So you did mention that she is taking a Pixaban. When her last dose of a Pixaban was would be helpful to know, as well as if she has comorbidities that could help narrow your differential diagnosis. So does she have a history of cirrhosis, for example, because then variceal bleeding might be something that you'd need to consider and that would change your management, as well as things like her renal function, cardiovascular comorbidities that might affect your target for transfusion, and any medications that predispose to bleeding, such as NSAIDs, ASA, etc. If I had more time, I tried to get a history of, you know, how much GI bleeding we've seen. Was it in the form of hematemesis? Was it in the form of melina? Was there hematochesia present? Um, When did that first start? Um, because that will give you a better sense of how acute this bleeding is and the relative urgency of investigations. 
It's also important to know if they have significant alcohol use or smoking um, and whether there's a history that may suggest something like a Mallory Weiss tear, for example, long history of frequent vomiting prior to an episode of hematemesis or coffee ground emesis, or if they have risk factors for peptic ulcer disease. What are some physical exam features that you would want to elicit? Um, So, of course, initially you're looking at um, making sure the patient's adequately resuscitated in terms of their vital signs, um, making sure their blood pressure is stable, they're not tachycardic if they were previously any longer, that they're breathing and oxygenating adequately. And then I would look for other signs that might help um, in narrowing my differential. So for findings that might suggest portal hypertension, for example, if they had splenomegaly, ascites, caput medusae, spider angiomas, those would all be helpful because that would suggest chronic liver disease. And again, um, variceal bleeding is something that you would consider as a possibility. You could also um, look for other signs of chronic liver disease, such as teres nails, clubbing, or gynecomastia. And of course, whenever someone comes in with a history of GI bleeding, it's important to do a digital rectal exam to ensure that um, they are in fact bleeding and the type of bleeding they're having, which will help you narrow down the potential locations of the bleeding. So is it, does it appear more Molina? Is it maroon stool or is it bright red blood, for example? Great. Uh, So you see this patient at the bedside. Uh, How would you manage this patient? So initially you want to ensure that they're adequately resuscitated. So crystalloids are usually the first thing we go for, given that they're on hand very easily and we can provide this before we have a cross match for blood products. Um, Depending on the acuity of the bleeding, you might consider providing the patient with O negative blood if you need it more acutely. And you'd also want to consider any anticoagulation that they had. For example, this patient was on a Pixaban and if she had come in with pretty significant bleeding, you might consider giving PCC um, to try and help reverse that if you could. Um, For example, if the patient had been on warfarin, you'd consider vitamin K and um, FFP or Octoplex um, as well. And certain DOACs also have um, specific um, reversal agents. So um, dabigatran has, I dare you, Sizumab. I don't know if that's how everyone pronounces it, but that's how I pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) You'd also want to provide the patient with a PPI infusion. Um, Generally, we would do an 80 milligram bolus and then 8 milligrams per hour infusion after that. Um, There's also some evidence for intermittent dosing of 40 milligrams IV BID. However, in the case of acute GI bleeding, um, where you're hoping to get the best consistent PPI levels for the patient, we tend to prefer the infusion. If there's concern for variceal bleeding, you'll also want to ensure you add octreotide, which decreases the Um, pressure in the splanchnic circulation and helps um, decrease the pressure in those varices. Um, So usually we do a 50 microgram bolus followed by a 50 microgram per hour infusion. And then all patients with cirrhosis who present with 
bleeding should get um, ceftriaxone one gram per day for seven days because they have an increased risk of bacterial translocation. And finally, you um, generally want to proceed with an upper endoscopy if you're worried about an upper GI bleed for definitive diagnosis and um, potential management. Okay, for this patient, it's pretty obvious from the stem that they need to be admitted in quite a acute setting. However, some cases are not nearly this obvious. How do we perform a risk assessment of our patient's GI bleed and decide whether or not they need to be admitted? Yeah, so that's an important question. Um, for each patient, the risk um, of upper GI bleeding should be assessed. And there are several scales um, that we can use to help us differentiate this. One score that's often used is the Glasgow Blatchford bleeding score that's been prospectively validated. Um, there was a large prospective trial with 676 patients that found uh, patients with Glasgow Blatchford bleeding scores of zero could be safely discharged home. All other patients who present with upper GI bleeding are generally admitted to hospital um, and should receive endoscopy within 24 hours of presentation. An important note is the Glasgow Blatchford bleeding score cannot be applied to patients with suspected variceal bleeding. Um, any patient where you suspect possible variceal bleeding should be admitted to hospital because they can uh, decompensate very quickly. How should we think about transfusion for patients with upper GI bleeding? Yeah, uh, a recent RCT involving 921 patients with upper GI bleeding found restrictive transfusion strategy of targeting a hemoglobin of 70 to have less six-week mortality, length of stay, and transfusion-related adverse events compared to a liberal strategy of greater than 90 hemoglobin. The overall benefit seen in the restrictive arm was mainly due to patients with liver cirrhosis, patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease or severe hemorrhagic shock were excluded from the study, and the patients all had fairly quick access to endoscopy, less than six hours or so. Also, there was a high risk for performance bias due to lack of blinding. Therefore, in practice, in general, if someone is coming in with large volume or rapid GI bleeding, we'll provide packed red blood cells without a specific target until they stabilize, given that your hemoglobin takes about 12 hours or so to adjust with acute blood loss. So we want to make sure that we're providing enough blood for what they're currently losing. And then once they have stabilized, we generally use a transfusion target of 70 for most people and sometimes a target of 80 if they have significant coronary artery disease. What is the evidence for PPI or prokinetic therapy prior to endoscopy? Evidence of pre-endoscopy PPI suggests that it may downstage endoscopic lesions and reduce the need for endoscopic therapy but this has no effect on mortality, re-bleeding, or need for surgery. Also, there are not significant differences seen between oral and IV preparations of PPI. PPI therapy after confirming high-risk ulcers that are endoscopically treated has been shown to reduce the rate of re-bleeding, need for surgery, and mortality for these patients. And in that study, 
um, patients were given a bolus of IV injection of 80 milligrams followed by an infusion of eight milligrams per hour for 72 hours. So that's generally what we provide if um, a patient has a high-risk ulcer that requires treatment. In terms of dose considerations, although initial landmark studies demonstrated benefit with initial bolus followed by continuous infusion of PPI, a recent meta-analysis suggests intermittent PPI is not inferior to continuous PPI therapy. This meta-analysis included daily doses as low as 40 milligrams of PPI and up to 200 milligrams of PPI per day. Practice has been that if intermittent PPI is being considered to use at least 80 milligrams per day, generally 40 milligrams BID of IV pentoprazole. Given its favorable safety profile, pre-endoscopic PPI therapy may be considered but should not delay resuscitation or endoscopy. It's particularly useful for patients whom you anticipate delay in endoscopy or if uh, an endoscopist has limited experience with endoscopic hemostasis. And prokinetic agents like erythromycin or metoclopramide can be administered before endoscopy um, as this may increase visualization and reduce the need for repeat endoscopy. Guidelines say you can use at your discretion, but it's not recommended for routine use. Generally, in my practice, I would say if someone has significant hematemesis um, or it's a case where you're expecting the stomach to be filled with a lot of blood or particularly blood clots, um, it's often helpful to clear the stomach so you're able to fully visualize um, the stomach, particularly the fundus tends to be uh, obstructed with clots. Um, what are some management pearls that you can provide about what goes on in the endoscopy suite and the different treatment options that are available once you're actually in the stomach? Yeah, so there are a number of possible causes for GI bleeding. Um, so one thing that we already mentioned was variceal bleeding. If we see a patient um, that has active variceal bleeding or stigmata of recent variceal bleeding, um, we often band these patients. So there's essentially a device that um, you can attach to the endoscope that allows us to suction up the column of the pharynx and then place a rubber band around it, which then cuts off the blood supply to that area and um, essentially causes that vessel to scar down. The band will eventually fall off and you sometimes get a banding ulcer in that area afterwards. So um, that's the general management for um, uh, esophageal variceal bleed. You can also sometimes get gastric uh, varices that bleed, and these can be a little bit trickier. They sometimes require uh, gluing. So um, there's a substance that we inject into the varix called cyanoacrylate. It's the same stuff as crazy glue. And essentially when you inject this, um, it polymerizes rapidly when it hits um, any liquid. So when it hits the blood uh, in the blood vessels, it polymerizes and hardens. Um, and then that kind of blocks blood supply into the varix. If um, 
it was another type of GI bleeding. Another really common one, for example, is um, peptic ulcer disease. So we see, you know, duodenal ulcers very commonly, sometimes gastric ulcers. Um, these can be treated with a few modalities. Generally, we like to uh, use at least two modalities if we're going to treat um, these ulcers. So you can inject the um, ulcer with epinephrine, which helps kind of constrict the um, blood supply to the blood vessel and can also provide some um, kind of pressure effect because you're injecting a, a fluid into the area. So it kind of compresses the blood vessel as well. You can use um, cautery. So we often use gold probe um, to cauterize uh, a vessel if we see it. Um, and that's another option. And then we also have clips. Um, so they're little metal clips that we use um, to kind of block off a vessel. And um, if the ulcer is small enough, sometimes you can even bring the edges of the ulcer together and kind of get really good um, pressure on the whole uh, ulcer itself. There are a few other uh, causes of GI bleeding. So for example, um, some patients might have gastric, enteral, vascular ectasias. Gave is something, um, a vascular abnormality that can be treated um, endoscopically as well. And we often use APC, so argon plasma coagulation for this. It's essentially, uh, we use argon gas and uh, electricity to sort of burn the surface of the mucosa of the stomach and cauterize those little blood vessels. So given this gentleman's anticoagulation need, should he take twice daily PPI for ulcer healing? There are three reviews that looked at answering that question, and they've all found that high-dose PPI is not significantly better than low-dose PPI in any clinical outcomes, including rebleeding, mortality, or need for eventual surgery. However, um, as I mentioned, a lot of gastroenterologists tend to be more comfortable with a PPI infusion, particularly if somebody is higher risk for, uh, you know, possible, uh, a high risk lesion. So as we discussed previously, um, there is good evidence for PPI infusion for individuals with, um, ulcers that have a high risk of rebleeding, for example. So to be, uh, more cautious, uh, we often do the PPI infusion initially, but, um, based on the data that we have, it's not wrong to do an intermittent PPI uh, dosing as well. How long after a bleed should someone use a PPI for? So meta-analysis that evaluated healing rates of NSAID-associated ulcers at four weeks and eight weeks in 656 patients with gastric or duodenal ulcers that were treated with omeprazole 20 milligrams per day or 40 milligrams per day included patients with ulcers three millimeters or larger or more than 10 erosions in the stomach or duodenum and about half for h pylori positive so for gastric ulcers treatment success at eight weeks was significantly higher at both ppi doses than at four weeks the 208 patients taking the 20 milligram dose showed 67 percent treatment success at four weeks and 83 percent at eight weeks the 212 patients taking 40 milligrams had 67% treatment success at four weeks and 82% at eight weeks. 
So eight weeks of treatment and then reevaluating with EGD to ensure healing um, was generally recommended for gastric ulcers because those um, require us to rule out malignancy. Duodenal ulcers showed no difference in healing at four and eight weeks at either PPI dose. The 20 milligram dose produced 84% treatment success at four weeks compared with 93% at eight weeks. And the 40 milligram dose showed 86% treatment success at four weeks compared to 88% at eight weeks. So four weeks of treatment for most duodenal ulcers um, is sufficient. Um, and relook with EGD is not necessary because malignant duodenal ulcers are very rare. There are only a few indications for long-term PPI, such as bleeding prevention in selected patients. So for example, if your patient has an ongoing risk factor for ulceration, um, which can't be modified. So a lot of our patients will take NSAID medications regularly for things like arthritis, and you can't always um, remove the exposure to NSAIDs entirely. Uh, another example would be our cardiac patients that are on daily ASA. That risk factor uh, would be difficult to modify. So they might continue on you know, at least daily PPI as long as they're on other medications that increase their risk of uh, duodenal ulcer or gastric ulcer. Um, also, patients with refractory GERD, as this would also treat their GERD symptoms, Barrett's esophagus and Zollinger-Ellison syndrome would benefit from PPI therapy, so they should continue that as well. What is your favorite endoscopy tool? Ooh, my favorite endoscopy... Related to GI bleeding? Correct. Um, I think the bander is pretty cool. Banding esophageal varices is very satisfying. Um, you get to see the result of your labor immediately and stop bleeding, which is pretty cool. What does that not work for clipping? I also like clips, but I had to pick one. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been another episode of Guts and Gall. Follow us where you get your podcasts at Guts and Gall. You can also leave suggestions for new episodes on our Twitter page. And until next time, stay gutsy.